1 Corinthians chapter 4. First Corinthians chapter number four, and we're up to verse number 14 tonight. I'm going to work down through verse number 21. We're going to see Paul here concluding his instruction that we've been working through in three different sermons in chapter four. And he's addressing his direct relationship with those at the church in Corinth. And you remember he started the chapter off saying, this is how you should receive us. Let a man so account of us. And he said, as ministers and stewards. And we started that first night with that, talking about the rowers and the galley ships. Last week, we kind of continued that thought with what a servant in Christ should look like. And then Paul gets even more personal tonight as he talks to this church through this letter about himself as their spiritual father. So I want us to consider that tonight. And take two headings from it, a spiritual father and then a planned visit. Let's read together from verse number 14. 1 Corinthians 4.14, this is God's word. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be you followers of me. For this cause have I sent unto you Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up, as though I would not come to you. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and you will know, not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power." For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for time together with the church and your word. We ask for your blessing upon this time. Help us to grow in our faith and our knowledge of you. Help us to grow to be more and more consumed by your Holy Spirit, used in his power, not our own. We ask for your blessing on this time now, in Jesus' name, amen. We begin in verses 14 through 17 in the heading of a spiritual father. And I'll make a quick note as we get into this, that not here or anywhere in Scripture will you find Paul calling himself their father. Um, That is a tradition that was carried over through parts of the early church and exists even to today, but... Jesus was clear in his instruction, specifically in the book of Matthew, that we have one father. In fact, you could even take Jesus' words there to say, you shouldn't even call your, your physical dad your father because God is your father. And we don't often take it that, to that extent because we understand when I, say, when I talk to you about my father in the earthly sense, we're not being religious there or spiritual at all. But I want us to be clear here as Paul gets into this, that he, he simply says spiritual father. And he's playing off of the metaphor that he uses often of the family. Timothy is his spiritual son. He would be the spiritual father. And all he means through that is he was the one God used to give birth to the church in Corinth. That, that's the extent of it. He does not mean that in a priestly sense. He doesn't mean it's in the sense of the pope or, or even anything um, quite as strings attached as we would even a a kin, blood kin relative relationship. So 
What does he say here? Verse 14, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Now notice his tense there again. He's offering a warning here, but he's still, again, what does he call them? Beloved sons. Now what has he been calling them all throughout the book so far? This letter, he keeps saying what? Brethren, 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 over and over and over again. Is he just being religious there? Is he just being like us as I say, good evening, Brother Jack, good evening, Sister So-and-so? No, he's, this is not what he's doing at all. He is speaking to them in an admonishing way. And he is using these close ties that he has with them to remind them, this is hard. I'm having to write a warning to you. I'm having to write to admonish you. But I do it in love. I love you as my sons in the faith. So he says, I don't write these things to shame you. Now, if you'll remember, all the way back, like let's use verse 8 as our proof text here. He said, now you are full, now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and I would that God that you did reign, and that we, almost, we, we would also reign with you. We talked last week about how he was using some irony there. He was being a bit sarcastic. He was talking to them um, in a way that could be received as offensive. It, it could have been received poorly by the Corinthians. In fact, if they'd have stopped right there, that would have been the end of it. But here he goes on to say, hey, don't write this to shame you. I'm not trying to put you to shame. I'm writing to warn you as beloved children. And he's, he's playing off of this father-son, mother-daughter, this close-knit, this tie family relationship that he has here. This is Paul saying, I wasn't inspired by bitterness to write to you this way. I have a sincere interest in your spiritual welfare. He wants to warn them. He wants to admonish them and not shame him. The Greek word here for shame is intrepo. It conveys the idea of turning against one's self. We all understand that when we are put to shame ourselves. You know, you kinda, it kind of turns you inside out. You kind of go down into your shell. And so Paul says, I didn't write to shame you. I didn't right to turn you against yourself. In fact, I wrote to do just the opposite. The, the Greek word for warn means to impress something upon the mind. Another English word that's good to be used there is admonish. I didn't write to shame you. I didn't write to turn you against yourself. I wrote to admonish you, to impress something upon your mind. So he didn't wish to turn the Corinthians against themselves, but to encourage in them a change of heart. Richard Pratt said it this way, Though he intended to shame them to some degree, their shame was not his ultimate goal. He employed shame as a tool for admonishing them, for inspiring them to reject their pride and repair their divisions. Calvin wrote this, Paul then simply affirms that what he had said had been said by him with no disposition to upbraid or with any view to hurt their reputation, but on the contrary, with paternal affection, he admonished them. Now, what are you and I to do with this? And we're going to get to more and the other verses here of what we're to do with this. But just from verse 14, there's a great point of application to be made. As Paul says, I didn't write these things to shame you, but as beloved sons, I wrote to admonish you. I would say that all of us, to some degree, will play the role of, quote, spiritual father. And let's give it some other words in our, in our time. Mentor, leader, the one discipling them. We're going to play this role to someone in some form or fashion in our lives. 
Every parent plays this role for their children. And then there's going to be people that God naturally puts in and out of your life that you kind of fill this role for them there. And I hope you would be filling this role. I hope that you who are older would be instructing those who are younger. That's very clear in the book of Titus. Older ladies should be instructing younger ladies. And some of you say, well, I'm not very old. You're older than somebody. And you say, well, I'm not very young. Well, you're probably younger than somebody. So we should always have this relationship going on in our lives. And same for you, man. I didn't mean to leave you out there. Older men instruct those who are younger. There should always be somebody older than you that you're taking admonition from. There should always be somebody younger than you that you're giving admonition from. And then your age won't always be the, the thing here, will it? It might be your maturity level in the faith. You might be of an elder status at a younger age, or you might be at a babe status at an older age, depending on when you were saved, depending on your spiritual growth, and on and on and on. Well, there's some simple steps in these roles that we can take to avoid shaming while at the same time admonishing in a helpful manner. Let me give you three things, and these are just from my own personal experiences. The first one that I would recommend to you here is ask rather than assume. Don't you just love it when someone assumes something about you? I hate it when I'm in a situation where I can't prove that I didn't, and it's going to be presumed that I did. I'll give you a, you know, a silly one, but you, you walk out of a bathroom, and it really smells, and you didn't leave the smells. Public bathroom. It was the person before you, but you just want to look at the other people coming in and say, was it me? I didn't do this, right? Well, it's just going to be assumed that you did do this because you were... The one. I think in our relationships with other people, it goes back to that treat others as you treat yourself and as you'd like to be treated. Do you go to someone just assuming something? Well, then you're not doing nothing but shaming them. With what you assume, you go to them asking, hey, is this true? Did you do this? Is this where you are? Can I help you with that? When you go asking did you instead of saying you did... You ask instead of assuming, then you're not so much shaming as admonishing. The second one I would give to you here is maintain your affection. Paul does this all throughout. Brothers, brethren, sons, um, beloved. He uses these descriptors on and on and on. When we're dealing with people, and boy... Surely we never just want, want to go and admonish someone. But when we are, keep those kind of relationships at the forefront of the talk. And then be prompted by love and nothing else. That's the third application I would give you there. Be prompted by love and nothing else. There's a form of legalism making its way around the church these days. And it's kind of this, I could do nothing else according to the scriptures. Well, yes, you could. You could be loving. This idea that you could do nothing else and you acted in meanness or you acted in rudeness or you acted with an accusation that maybe wasn't even true or maybe you took one piece of scripture and didn't take all of piece of scripture. When we're appropriately using scripture, you know what the outcome will be? Love. What did old John say near the end of his life? In his 90s, church history tells us, they said that they would prop him up. He couldn't even preach anymore. They would get him up before the church and just prop him up. And with every bit of energy that he could, he could muster, and 
This is church history, not biblical history. But in biblical history, we read John saying this, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. They said he'd get up before the church and all this sermon would ever be was love one another. This is what he would say. And this is what he says here in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He says, if you can't love the brethren, then you're not saved. So be motivated, be prompted by love and nothing else. If your idea is God's put me on earth just to fix some other people, then you're the one who needs a fixing. But if your idea is, I love them to death, and I see this issue, and how are you going to see the issue? Usually you had to deal with it in yourself first, right? 99% of the time that's the case. It's rare that you're going to read about something in Scripture that you've never had to deal with, and God's going to lead you to deal with somebody else about this thing you've read in Scripture that you've never actually had to deal with. That's the case there still, I would say, fix you instead of fixing them. But there will be times... I'll just use my relationship with Brother Scotty here. Brother Scotty's ahead of me in ministry. How many years have you been in ministry, Brother Scotty? It's a lot. 78. Somebody do the math. 44 years in ministry. And I've been in ministry since 2003. So what's that? 19 years. So he's double. You're almost is that no, more than double? I had him here. There are times where he has to come to me and say, and he's always real nice about it. He'll say, Pastor, not chance, not dude, not bro. He'll say, Pastor, I think I know what you're thinking. Or I think I know what you're trying to do, but here's the problem with it. And it's real and I don't you know, usually don't even say problem. He just eases me into it. And I know it's coming, and I'm waiting on it. <laughs> this, is, this is all right. He's not doing that to try to, well, he is trying to fix me. But he's doing it out of love. Not even, it's love for me, but more than that, it's love for the church. When we first got to know each other, the love relationship wasn't there. But he loved the church, and I loved the church, and God had called us and put us both here. So he's motivated by that. We must be the same way. So let me put Brother Scotty on the spot. Verse 16, Paul says, be followers of me. Also, I'm telling you, be followers of Brother Scotty. No, he says no. Okay. <laughs> but this is how it should be. And then there are going to be those. So Brother Scotty helps me and some of you others. And then there are those that I might help along. And I've it the same way. Got to be motivated out of love. So ask rather than assume. Maintain your affection. Be prompted by love and nothing else. I, I, uh, I tell you, I'm a recovering Pharisee. You guys know this about me. It's a problem of mine. Very pharisaical, very legalistic, very judgmental. So it's a thing that I work on. I've told you, I've got a friend who has me to lunch every once in a blue moon. As soon as we sit down, he'll say, how are you doing with your legalism? And I just say, hush. Don't, I don't want to talk about it today. I've been awfully judgmental lately. So as I was talking to you about this legalism, this kind of making its rounds in the modern church, my own, my own conscience made this objection. When you start talking about letting Scripture lead us to love instead of correct, that seems fluffy. That's what, what I just said to myself. That just seems lubby-dovey. It seems fluffy. We don't always like it like that, do we? We want to cut it straight. We want to do what the Word says, etc. But I'm promising you, if you'll live out the full account of Scripture, it'll cause you to live out love. It won't cause you to live like a wolf. What do wolves do? They sneak around in the dark. They howl at the moon. 
They attack from behind. What did the Bible tell us? Beware of wolves and sheep's clothing. We've got to be careful with this. We've got to be careful that we're not acting like this. Sometimes I think as sheep, we like to put on a wolf costume and do some damage. We can't do this. We've got to be acting in love. Now, from there in verse 14, or verse 15, Paul points out that there will be those in our lives who we are going to have this special relationship with. Notice verse 15. For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, how many of you have been there? Now, biblically, we will often get literal numbers, but then there will also be times where we get these large numbers that seem unrealistic, and that was the point. So 10,000 in our day, with the, especially with the, the inflation of the dollar, it's not all that much, is it? I remember as a kid thinking, I wish I had $1,000. And now I, I think, I wish stuff didn't cost $1,000. Uh, like around the throne of Christ, how many people did John say he saw there? 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. How many is that? Are we supposed to do the math? No, he doesn't let us do the math there. What he's saying there, there's this innumerable number of people from every nation, tribe, tongue, people gathered around the throne of Christ. Paul's doing the same thing here when he says, for though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, meaning every other believer. Remember what he said? You belong to us, I belong to you. We all belong to Christ. We, we just went through those verses a few, a, few moment, uh, a few weeks ago. Every one of us has each of us to be our instructors. So sometimes Jack instructs me. Sometimes I instruct Jack. Sometimes Miss Wiggins instructs me. Sometimes I instruct Miss Wiggins. And we're kind of all in this together. And then you may be listening to people on the radio or TV. They're instructing you. You may be reading books. They're instructing you. You may be talking to people that don't go to our church, and you're instructing them. Paul's point is being you have all of these people whose iron is sharpening your iron, and your iron is sharpening their iron in Christ, and you're growing in the faith. But in spite of that, he says, yet have you not many fathers? Now, physically speaking, typically, how many fathers do you have? You have the one, right? Typically. I know there's some odd situations, but typically. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Now, here again, he does not mean this in the literal sense. He's, he's, he's making an example here. Same as a father begets a son. He says, spiritually, I led you to Christ. I helped you start your church. So he said, I'm, I'm like your spiritual father, and I love you all the same as I would blood children should I have any there. He's their spiritual father. God used him to bring them into the faith. We're going to have many instructors in life. We're going to have many fellow laborers in the faith, but only a few with which we have this type of relationship, a father-son type relationship. So I'll illustrate this with my own life. Early on for me spiritually, it was my dad. Right? He was in the house. He was the leader of our home. He took us to church. He taught us the word. He led us in family prayer time and devotions. Everything I, what is the, it's going around right now because of kindergarten graduations. Everything I needed to know in life, I learned in kindergarten. Isn't that the poem? Yeah. Well, everything I needed to learn in life, I learned from my dad. And you, I know your moms are saying, well, you, well your mother taught you some things too. But she did it under dad's authority. Joking. That was a joke. From... 
Yeah, no, I was hot, so I needed it. So from there, we, you know, we, 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 had, we, we lived in two different towns early on for me growing up. And there was a couple other pastors. But finally, when we sort of settled down, and I got to an age where cognitively I could understand the scriptures and really be nurtured in the word, it was Brother Willard Thomas, who was my pastor. And he was sort of a spiritual father to me. At that time in our church, a man named Mark Stroud was our youth director. And Mark actually pastors another church now. And in fact, I'm working to get him to come next fall to our, not this fall, but the following fall to preach our revival. He's a great preacher, and I hope that he can. He's a very busy guy as far as preaching goes. But, but on a more youthy level, you know, my pastor was not into sports like me anymore. And he was older than me. We had different interests there. But he was still a spiritual father to me. But this youth guy, now he was right there with me. He'd take, take me out on Sundays, and we'd hit baseballs together. And he liked baseball, and I liked baseball. And I didn't know how to hit a curveball. I was trying to make the high school team. And he and his dad taught me how to hit a curveball. And so he was the first to encourage me to preach. He was the first to encourage me to say amen in church and worship. And so this is, this is Mark. And then my, I went to a Christian school. My high school principal is Randy. Randy Royce has preached for us. Some of you remember Brother Randy. And he was a spiritual father to me. He nurtured me along. When you get sick of me, ever saying to you or saying as far as our practice goes around here, can you give me scripture for it? You can blame Randy Royce because all through high school, that was his policy. I was that, I was that pharisaical young man. And he would say, yeah, but can you give me scripture for that? And it would drive me nuts. And I would say, well, I don't know it right offhand, but at least talk to me about it. And he's like, I don't want to talk to you about it. Do you can give me scripture for it? What did that lead to later in life for me? I'm just going to preach the scriptures. And I appreciate the spiritual father that this man was for me. There's Brother Mike Owens. A lot of you have heard Brother Mike preach. He's a pastor in East Tennessee in Kingsport there in the mountains. And from the day I announced my call to preach, I was 15 years old. Not too long after that, he said, I want you to come up here and preach on a Sunday for us. And I was just a kid. My parents had to drive me there to do this. And all, all the years, he was, a, he was a mentor to me in ministry. Even when I first came here, when I was praying about coming here, Brother Mike was a part of that, of that. He would talk to me. He would pray with me over these things. When I first got here, and I, would, I wouldn't know what to do sometimes. I'd call Brother Mike and say, what do I do? And he would tell me what to do. Then there's Brother Rye. Brother Rye was a spiritual father to me. He, I didn't know how to serve communion. I went to Brother Rye's house, and in his living room, he served me communion, and I served it to him. We practiced on one another. And that's how I learned how to serve the communion there. And, and lots of things with Brother Rye. My pastor in... Lynchburg, Virginia, when we lived there for a while, Brother Wayne Hudson was a spiritual father to me. Brother Scotty is a spiritual father to me. So we, we have these relationships. And it's unique how it's not all at the same time, and then it's not all at the same place and all for the same reasons, but throughout a Christian life, you're going to have these types of relationships with people. Paul's point is here, you're going to have 10,000 instructors, but there's going to be this one or maybe these two people who are special to you in life in this regard. Paul was this for the Corinthians. So his point is, as he writes to them to admonish them, as he writes to them and say, there's a problem. We've got to deal with it. Well, just read chapter 5, verse 1 right there. Everybody see that in your Bible? It's reported commonly there is fornication among you, and such fornication is not so much named among the Gentiles that one should have his father's wife. 
He's about to have to say that to them. That's hard, isn't it? I mean, you don't want to have to have that conversation. So what is he doing here? He's saying, nobody cares like you quite like I do. Not everybody could claim that. But Paul had laid out his case here. I mean, just from verse 9 through 13, he had laid out his case here. And all of the things that he, he talked about, that the, sort of the personal sacrifices he made for their sake and for the sake of Christ in the church. So we, we bring this into our minds. Just as a physical father wishes the best for his children, and just as a father will stress, and just as a father will sacrifice for his children, this is what Paul is saying here. Calvin wrote of that father-son relationship. He said, they take pains in instructing you, be it so. Very different is the love of a father. Very different is his anxiety. Very different his attachment. And we know this to be the case. In light of this, Paul says in verse 16, Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. So he said, I love you like sons. I feel like a father to you spiritually. And I want you to be imitating me in your living. I want you to follow, Paul says, my unselfish devotion to Christ, my tireless love and service to fellow believers. All of these things from verse 9 down through 13, just, just browse those verses with me there. And remember the things from last time that he talked about there. Well, death, he says, as an apostle, it was just appointed to, to us to die for the gospel's sake. And then he says, In verse number 10, to be a spectacle for the sake of the gospel. Then he goes on to say that we are weak, we are despised, we were hungry, we were thirsty, we were homeless, fools for Christ. He says, in all of these things, I urge you, verse 16, be followers of me in these things. Then in verse 17, he writes about sending Timothy. So until he could come to them to deal with them face to face on this, head on, He says, I'm sending you, Timothy, for this cause I send unto you, Timothy, who is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ as I teach everywhere and every church. Timothy was a spiritual son. He was faithful. He was one who would live in such a way as to remind them of their initial relationship with God through Paul. And based off of this, we would conclude from Paul's point of view, that Timothy had taken this relationship seriously. Timothy had taken this idea of the father-son, the mentor-mentee, the discipler-discipli. There's some good words for you. Relationship very seriously and was living out sort of an imitation, not not only of the beliefs that Paul had taught him, but also the lifestyle that Paul had instructed him. And you'll remember in Timothy's life, he was asked to do some sort of unique and excruciating things. He went along. He he did this. Paul told him to, and and he did this. Chuck Swindoll said of Paul and Timothy here, with his physical presence among the Corinthians, Timothy would provide an observable example of Paul's ways in Christ. And, And for sure, that's because of what Paul says. Um... Verse 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. So obviously he he wasn't allowed of the Lord at this time to go, but he was allowed to send Timothy to them there. So, spiritual father. Now, with that, we want to see a planned visit. 
And that's verse 18 through 21, and we'll end out the chapter. And as we think of this, I kind of want you to think about when you were a kid and you were home alone. Did you ever, guys, did you ever get, I was probably 12, 13 before mom and dad would leave me home alone. But that was a unique time, you know. Run around in the house, jump on the furniture, scream real loud. I don't know, whatever it is you did. When I was younger, we, had, we still had one of the TVs that had the pull-push button to turn it on and off. You remember when you would turn those off, it would click real loud, but then the screen would stay lit up, and then the dot would get smaller, 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 smaller. Man, I wasn't supposed to be watching TV, and I'd hear the car come up in the driveway. I'd flip that TV off and go pretend like I was reading or folding laundry, and I'd just pray that <laughs> that thing went off before they got into the, the house there. This is sort of where, where Paul is here. He said, I'm, I'm trying to write to admonish you, and I'm coming to you as soon as the Lord will let me. But till I get there, don't be running around the house. Don't be jumping on the furniture. Do like you're supposed to be doing. In fact, that's how he ends here. You look at verse 21. What would you prefer? That I come to you with the rod or in love? He said, the way you act between now and then, that's, that's up to you, and that's how I'm going to get to come to you there. So let's look at these verses, and then we'll go home. Verse 18. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. So this is Paul saying to them, I've heard that some of you are saying, Paul is only this bold at a distance. He won't come here and say these things to our faces. And so what's his, his thing to that? Well, I'm sending Timothy, and as soon as the Lord will let me, I'll be there. Another way to take this is them saying, Paul's been here, but he's gone. He's never going to come back. We're not going to have to face him. We're not going to have to do what he says. We've got Apollos. We've got these other guys. We can do whatever we want to do. So Paul sends Timothy to help initially with plans to come himself, if God would allow him to come. Verse 19, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord will. Now this is a great lesson for us. It's not part of this sermon. I don't even think it's part of the tone of this letter, but it's a practice here that you and I must be aware of. Paul was not setting his own agenda. Paul was saying here, Here's what I want to do, but I'm going to do what God tells me to do. I'm going to go where he tells me to go. Well, how do we know this? And we're Bible people. We're going to get the Bible out to figure out when to go home tonight. You remember that church that was going to change the service times? They had been meeting at 11, and they decided we're going to make it 1030. I'll make fun of our church here. And in the meeting to talk about it, somebody stood up and said, well, bless God. If 11 a.m. was good enough for Peter and Paul and John, it's good enough for us. Some things are not directly given to us in Scripture. So how do we make these decisions? Well, we use wisdom, for sure. What seems like the best decision to make, and that's the decision we make. But we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. He should be leading us. He should be guiding us. This is what Paul is saying to here. If God, the Holy Spirit, will allow me, I will come to you. But until he does, I'm going to go where he sends me to go there. We must be in tune with that practice in our lives. With this, then, Paul predicts a very bold thing. He says, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. <laughs> when I get there, I'm going to find out, not your words, but if there be any power behind those words trying to think what we used to say as kids on the playground. Um, well, kind of like that, but it was in fighting terms. 
If you can't talk the talk, if you can't walk the walk, don't talk the talk. And then we had a bunch of other ones, you know. If you can't run with the big dog, stay off the porch. If you can't handle the heat, stay out of the kitchen. You know, all of these kinds of things. You've got to be able to talk smack every now and again, you know. So Paul here says, there's a lot of talk. You remember the saying, talk is cheap? Let's see if there's any power behind that talk. Swindoll said he would find out the substance behind the superficiality. That's a nice way to say that. Calvin said they must bring forward that power which distinguishes the true servants of Christ from the merely pretended. Now, what, is, what power is Paul working in here? As he talks about the power in verse number 19. Well, Paul's working with apostolic power. What about these guys? Are they working with apostolic power? What about their other paraded teachers that he talks about there, who weren't their spiritual father in the faith? Were they working with apostolic power? Well, surely not. The Greek word from verse 19 and verse number 20, for which we get power. Anybody? It's the Greek word for power, most always in Scripture. Some of you are mouthing it. Some of you are thinking it. Dunamis, right? It's spelled D-Y-N. Does it sound like dune? A-M-I-S. The, let me give you a definition of this word. The potentiality to exert force in performing some function. So he talks about power. It's the potentiality to exert force in performing some function. Now that's a, that's a natural or a supernatural definition, isn't it? Do you have the potentiality to exert force to perform some function? Well, sure you do. If I said, all right, let's all stand. Well, you have the potential to be able to stand. And the older I get, I have to grunt to be able to stand. And then I was noticing my father, who I'm following in his footsteps closely, has to grunt and shove off of something to be able to stand to get up out of his chair. But the potentiality is still there for sure. But let me give you some more defining for this word. Dunamis. Possession of controlling influence. Often understood as manifesting influence over reality in a supernatural manner. Now that's what we want to get into. Possession of controlling influence, often understood as manifesting influence over reality in a supernatural manner. Paul says here, not the speech of them which are puffed up. Some of you are puffed up. Some of you are puffed up saying, I won't come to you. I wouldn't say this to your face or because I'm not there, you don't have to listen to me. But I'll come to you shortly if the Lord will allow me. And I'll find out, not your talk, but the power. Is there any power to back up your talk? Pratt says he wanted to see if these proud leaders who opposed him had the gifts and demonstrations of the Holy Spirit to back up their theological claims. He wanted to demonstrate to them that their, and, and this is in quotes, gospel lacked the power to mend lives and create unity. A lot of ways you can go at religion. But there's only one way to go at religion that changes lives and brings unity to human beings. And that's through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ promised when he was here, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And so as earnest for being back with Jesus Christ someday, we have the Holy Spirit who will change lives and bring peace and unity 
Harmony is a good word there. This is key, Paul says in verse 20, for understanding the kingdom of God. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. The kingdom of God does not consist of talk. The kingdom of God consists of power. I used to do a lot of one-on-one evangelism. And one of the things that I, I, I never cease to be amazed of with that is I could use hours and hours and lots of energy talking to someone, trying to convince them. This is right, and you were wrong, and you need to change. And I could do it angrily, and I could do it in love, and I could do it from an apologetic standpoint. I could do it like, like begging, be a car salesman, please. <laughs> it always was a wonderful surprise, though. When it was almost as if before I could get the first words out of my mouth, the Holy Spirit had already done the work. And there was power to this, and salvation was the result of it. This is what Paul is saying here. The kingdom of God does not consist of talk, it consists of power. Talk is cheap. Anyone can use words to manipulate the naive. But Paul would rather test them based on the work of the Holy Spirit. Hold your place, flip back to chapter 2. He's already talked about this a little bit. Chapter number 2 and verse number 4. He says, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now you get a good practice in verse 5, by the way. How do we determine is this of man or is this of God? Especially when we see something that is supposed to be Holy Spirit power. Well, often you can simply judge it based off who gets the glory. Often if man's getting the glory, then it was of man and not of God. But if God's getting the glory because you can say, that man could never do this, this must be the Holy Spirit, then that is the Holy Spirit. And praise the Lord for that, right? But Paul says here, I didn't come to you with enticing words. I didn't come to you with my own wisdom. I simply came doing what God told me to, and you saw power through a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Flip over now to chapter 12. Hold your place in verse chapter 4. Go over to chapter 12. Later in the letter. Verse 8 and 9. He's talking about the manifestation of the Spirit. And he says in verse 8, For to one is given by the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit there, the word of wisdom. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing by the same Spirit. To another, and he just keeps going here with this same thing. And his point, the point I want to make from what Paul is saying here, and I'll preach you chapter 12 later, and we'll talk about the gifts. I don't want you to focus on the gifts right now so much as I want you to focus on the idea that who is the power in the church? It's the Holy Spirit. And this is what Paul says here. He says, some of you are puffed up. There's a whole lot of talk. You ever heard that saying, uh, big hat, no cattle? Talking about a rancher or a cowboy there. This is what Paul is saying here. He says, where's the power? Where's the Holy Spirit in this? And then in verse 21, he leaves him with a choice. What will you? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? Will I have to come to you this way? Or can I come to you in love and in meekness? And he writes ahead to try to pre-solve this problem, doesn't he? And and he says, "I, I don't do it to shame you. I'm doing it to admonish you. 
There's an issue and it needs to be corrected. So what are you and I to do with this? Well, one, we're waiting on the return of Christ. How are we living? If it, if it were the same scenario we read about tonight, and, and, and I don't mean to put this on the second coming of Christ, but play the game. Are we living so that Christ could come in love? Or are we living so that Christ would have to come with a rod? He's already come with a rod. I know theologically my example doesn't make good sense, but I think you get the point. And then, who is it in life that we're gleaning from? Who in life is gleaning from us? We need to have these relationships in our lives. And in those times when someone's gleaning for us, admonish and not shame. Now, Paul did shame them a little bit. I mean, he, he was pretty rough on them there in the verses leading up to this. But he, he followed that with, but, but I love you like sons. And I don't mean to have to shame you here, but I need you to see how important this is that I'm talking to you about. And then when we're gleaning, when we're on the receiving end, Let's be quick to hear, slow to speak. Let's be doers and not hearers only. All right, let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for our time together in the Word with your church. Thank you that you let us read this letter that Paul wrote to these people in Corinth way back and dealt with some things that maybe we're not directly dealing with, but to be able to see just how helpful it is to us even now. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who leads and guides us, who empowers our lives. Lord, help us to not be puffed up. Help us to not be full of talk. Help us to be full of the Spirit. Help us to be led of the Spirit. Help us to be gleaning from these spiritual fathers in life and then to be being a spiritual father to some in life. Lord, all in all, help us to be prepared. For the great and horrible day, the return of Jesus Christ our Lord. What a blessing it is to think that this could be the day. Lord, we long for you to come quickly. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. All right.